Ann Tassel, and I'm on the board here at Emmaus. And today uh, I have the opportunity to share with you. Uh, but before we jump in, first I just want to welcome you all to Emmaus Church community. Um, it's an exciting time in the life of our church, right? There's a lot of things happening. And um, Pastor Nate, actually this morning, he's preaching over at Heritage this morning, so you can be praying for him there. Um, but before we begin, uh, we, if you need a Bible, you can just raise your hand. The ushers can help you with that. Um, I am going to go through a lot of scripture this morning, so it would be great if you could follow along. Uh, I will be jumping between different versions. That was my bad, so sorry about that. We're just going to do our best. Um, and then the other thing that I want to mention for the ushers, if you could help us all out, underneath your seats there is a basket, if you're on the ends of the row. If you could just pull that out and fill that out. If you're a guest, we're excited that you're here. You can go ahead and fill that out so we can stay in touch with you. Or if you have any change in information about your family. All right. I'm going to set myself up here. So we are in the middle of a sermon series together that is called The Well-Worn Path. And the reason that we decided we wanted to uh, focus on this is these are the old stories for the road ahead. These are the classic stories from the Old Testament that are, uh, they're just essential for our journey together, understanding who God is, understanding who we are, understanding how we can move forward together. Um, so we've been going through a series of different classic stories from the Old Testament. So before I start telling a story, I'd love for you to hear uh, my niece tell her version of Moses. This was Thanksgiving last year. So Moses had a little tiny baby named Jesus. And he was crawling around. And you know what um, happened? Don't tell the new story. What? Did you know what happened? What happens? The, the lion took the baby and he ate the baby. <laughs> So yes, so I'm done. Yeah, so another reason we want to teach on the classic stories is so your kids get their facts straight. I think she had maybe three Bible stories that were mixed into one. Um, so yeah, that's Lainey. It's n never a dull moment. But um, do any of you like planning? Is planning life-giving to any of you? Can I see some hands? Anybody? I knew it. Okay, and well, I'm, I'm actually surprised so many people that didn't raise their hands. You made it on time this morning, so good job. Um, but I love planning. I actually recently read a report that said that you can enjoy planning a vacation just as much as you can actually going on a vacation, which I thought was pretty crazy, but I believe because I love planning. It's so much fun. And I know that some of you aren't planners. You're, you're more go-with-the-flow kind of people. And um, I know that this doesn't mean that you're necessarily lazy. It's just you know that you know, life is what happens when you're making other plans. I think that's a Bible verse, like 1 John Lennon or something like that. Um, but life is just what happens. It, you just go with it. Last week, Pastor Nate, he preached on the fiery furnace and how no matter where we go, God is with us. This is an essential truth for us as believers. But the other essential truth is that where we are going, God is with us and he knows where we're going. He is the one making the plans. Amen. So today, that's what we want to talk about, this incredibly important truth 
that God is with us and he has a plan. And we're going to hear about this plan in the life of Joseph. Today in Joseph's life, we're going to go over some essentials about God's plan. We're not going to get down into the weeds of, you know, predestination, all that. No, I'm not equipped to teach on that. So what we're going to learn is God has a plan to save us. God has a plan to restore us. And God has a plan that is bigger than us. Uh, Joseph's story starts in Genesis 37. It's actually a really epic and long story, so get comfortable. We're going to be here for about four hours as I dissect this together. Um, When Jacob was 90, his favorite wife, Rachel, had her first son, so she was... And she was in advanced years as well. Now, Jacob already had 10 sons by three other women, and you thought you had trouble remembering birthdays. This poor guy. So uh, anyway, during this time, Joseph, he grew in character, and Jacob, his father, loved him. He was his favorite son. He loved him for many reasons. One, it was the, the son of his favorite wife. The other was that he had character, and another was that he was this miracle child that came in advanced years. Um, So, in order to express this love, uh, Jacob gave him uh, what would be the gift of every teenage boy's dreams, which would be a rainbow coat. I'm I'm trying to envision what this would, (laughs) how this went down, like him opening up the gift and like, "Ah, you shouldn't have, thanks dad. Was mom with you? Was she not available when you went shopping? Like, what happened? Um, but actually, no, this would have been a, his cherished, prized possession because it was so expensive. And um, the other thing that was happening to Joseph in his youth was that God was speaking to Joseph. He was having these dreams, and these dreams were pointing toward a great destiny. Now, I'm going to go ahead and read this to you from Genesis 37. He, this is talking about Joseph, said to them, this is his family, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. I think these dreams that Joseph had, they took faith for him to believe, and I'll tell you why. Joseph was the smallest, he was the youngest, and he was not loved by his family other than his father. His mother had passed away when he was a toddler, giving birth to his younger brother. He wasn't the pick of the litter, he wasn't treated well, but he reacted to the dream the way he reacts in most of his life, which is in two essential ways. When God gave him this dream, he had faith in God's good plan. And the second thing that he had was uncompromising character. And what, where I see that this is evident is that he is still working hard. I'm trying to imagine what it would be like for me having a dream that I would one day be a queen and then my dad tells me to go out and tend to the sheep. I'd be like, excuse me, like Beyonce over here, I'm not gonna go take care of sheep. But he still worked hard, he still obeyed his father, and he also, he didn't fall into the sins of his brothers. At the beginning of chapter 37, it says he saw that they were doing wrong and he he gave a faithful report to his father. So um, I think that this is indicative of him having uncompromising character. 
So speaking of his brothers, they had a plot brewing for Joseph. And I know that we know this story, but let's just go through it together. Um, instead of doing something that I would assume would be really brotherly if you're annoyed with a younger brother, like, I don't know, giving a swirly or like a wedgie or something, they decide they're going to kill him, which is a little bit extreme. But these are extreme guys. This is a group of people who have already killed entire families, and their neighbors were very afraid of, these, of his older brothers. So they grabbed 17-year-old Joseph, and instead of killing him, they decide we're going to throw him in a pit. And let's read together in Genesis 37, starting in verse 26. Then Judah, this is one of his brothers, said to his other brothers, What profit it us if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listen to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. How did he react here? How did Joseph react? It doesn't say in Scripture what his reaction was. Later on in Genesis, we hear when his brothers are talking about what they had done in this instance, that he was in distress, he was anguished, and he was begging them. So we don't read that here. But this is what I can imagine. I can imagine that Joseph had a lot of emotion and he had a lot of questions. First, I think he felt humiliated. Um, here he is. He's lost his prized possession. It was ripped from him. Why? Why did this happen? Second, I think he was heartbroken. He's being stolen from, the fam from his father, his beloved father who loved him tenderly and completely. How, how could this happen? Third, I think he was angry. He had been intimidated, threatened, and betrayed by his brothers. This was his tribe. They were the ones who were supposed to protect him and love him, and instead they sold him. Why did they do this? Why? I think he was fearful. Here he was in the presence of strange people from a strange land, taking him to another strange land. He didn't speak the language. He didn't know the customs. He had never been there before. He was probably bound and tied to the back of a camel as they walked days and days to their destination. He was afraid. Did I do something wrong? What's going on? And finally, he was abused. He was in pain. He was hurting. He was a slave, dehumanized, beaten, God, are you good? God, did you lie? I think these were all feelings and thoughts that Joseph was going through right in the wake of having this dream, this vision of a great destiny. And these are feelings and questions that all of us grapple with on our journey. These are the real things that we deal with on a daily basis. Having a dream and a vision from God and then walking out the painful realities of life. God, do you have a plan? What's going on? I think the powerful part of this story, even though we don't hear what he's feeling, is we see what his father is feeling. In verse 34, Jacob, his father, tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave, 
so his father wept for him. While Joseph was on this long march to a distant land, his father was heartbroken. His father was hurting. His child had suffered. He didn't even know if he was still living. And in this pain that Joseph was experiencing, God the Father's heart was breaking too. And this is the point that I want to make here. God has a plan for good, even when there's evil that's happening. God didn't plan the evil that happened to Joseph, but God has a plan to save. He has a plan to restore, and he has a plan that is bigger than Joseph. Joseph was sold to an Egyptian named Potiphar, and Potiphar was a captain of the guard in Pharaoh's army. And this is when things finally pick up for Joseph. Here's an upswing moment for him. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. This is chapter 39. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight, and attended him, and made him overseer of his house, and put him in charge of all that he had. Yes, he did it. His dream has finally been realized. He's great. I mean, he's still a slave, but he's a great slave. And things have finally picked up. So this must be it, right? He he must feel so much relief, like, oh, everything makes sense. No. No one reading this story thinks that the story ends here. No one who's watching is thinking, finally, the, the vision God gave, it's come to pass. But we do this to each other all the time, don't we? We see pain that's going through our lives. We're looking for God's plan. And so we try to explain, excuse, or ignore what's happening around us. When things don't go to plan, we want to explain it. We want to excuse it. We want to ignore it. And this is what I mean by that. Um, We want to look what's immediately around, and we want to be able to wrap it up within a day but a lot of stories can't be told in a day. And God is telling stories with lifetimes and generations and eternity. If we're looking to get an explanation of why he's doing things and what his plan is, we're not going to be able to see that in a day, right? And if we're trying to excuse God and saying, this is worth it because this has happened, and we're trying to say that to the people around us in pain, what ends up happening is instead of healing, we end up hurting. Have any of you experienced this before? See, see, God did this to you so that this will happen. No, no. We do not need to explain God, and we do not need to excuse God. God still has a plan to save us. God still has a plan to restore us. God still has a plan that's bigger than us. And he reveals that to us in little slivers or in giant revelations. But he is the one who knows, ultimately, not us. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Who can know the mind of God? Who can understand his ways? We have to have faith, just like Joseph did, that God is good and has a good plan and have that uncompromising character. This might be frustrating, but for me, this is also very freeing because I know that when I'm sitting with someone and they're asking those questions of pain and they're trying to figure things out, I don't have to give an answer. I don't have to know. I can sit on the two things that I do know. I want to have uncompromising character, and I know that God is good and he has a good plan. 
So it's a good thing Joseph didn't think that this was the realization of all of those dreams either because things went sideways for him pretty quickly. Um, Potiphar had a wife that was in the house that he worked at who, frankly, I think she was in the first round of auditions for the Real Housewives of Cairo or something. She was, she was pretty intense. Um, actually, it's really cute. St. Augustine wrote about her and, and said very tactif- tactfully, Potiphar's wife wickedly loved him. I'm like, oh, that's a unique turn of a phrase. Um, but anyway, Potiphar's wife, she ended up falsely accusing him, and he was thrown into prison. So let's keep reading Genesis 39. Went too far. Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. So Joseph met another unforeseen turn in the road with his uncompromising character and his faith in God's goodness and plan. He's still working hard. He's doing the best that he can. And while he's there, two of Pharaoh's servants end up there. You guys know this story, right? The two servants end up there. They both have dreams, and Joseph interprets them for for them. And he's right on. So the one that's headed back to Pharaoh, he says, Remember me. When you get back to Pharaoh, I'm not supposed to be here. Tell him. Tell him about me. Let him know so I can get out of here. Now, again, I'm, I'm trying to put myself into this position, and I think... The reason, I love this part of the story. I I love it because Joseph has to wait for two years before anything comes of what has just happened. And what I love about that is because this is a miracle, really. I mean, he ends up with these two decision makers there in the prison. He is able to hear from God and deliver a message. And then one of them has the capacity to stand before Pharaoh and actually get him freed. So if I'm sitting in that position and I'm Joseph, I'm already back packing my bags. I'm ready to go. I'm like, this is it. I'm getting freed. It's going to happen. It's going to happen now. But instead, it happens in two years. The reason that I love this part of the story is because I, I realized that I have this um, perspective that when a miracle of God happens, the opportunity is short and there won't be another miracle coming in a while. I have, a per- I have had a perspective that God has some sort of strategic miracle reserve that he's holding up in heaven and he can only release a few at a time. When the reality is God does, is not running short on miracles. He isn't running short on speaking to you, on, on the voice that he wants to say. And he is not intimidated by timelines that are longer than what we, what we are comfortable with. So here Joseph is waiting for two years And eventually, Pharaoh has his dream. The the servant there before Pharaoh remembers Joseph, and he gets pulled before him to interpret the dream. The dream was about the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine. Then Joseph, fresh out of prison, gave mighty Pharaoh advice. Have you ever been called in front of your boss and you have to give a report? Have you ever been called in front of someone with authority or like even like your grandpa and he wants you to come in and talk to him about your day or something? It's a little bit intimidating. I can't imagine coming from prison, being dirty and stinky, I was a slave, I'm from another country, and feeling comfortable and confident enough to stand before Pharaoh, give him a correct interpretation, but Joseph goes even farther than that 
and he gives him advice. This guy is crazy. He tells him what he should do in light of the vision that God has given him, in light of this dream. And I was thinking about this, and and at this point, Joseph could now speak the, the local language. He was fluent in it. He knew the customs and the cultures. He had been living there for 13 years. He had also been in the prison and working for a guard at the palace. So he knew how Pharaoh worked, and he knew what made him mad, and he knew the kind of things that he liked to hear, and he knew the kind of things that he would receive and listen to. I don't think this was, this was an accident here. And I don't think he could have stood before Pharaoh and given him advice if he had had a compromised character or if he had doubted the plan of God. And this is why, do you see this? Are you connecting the dots here? He had a steadfast faith that meant that when God spoke to him and gave him the word, he heard it and he believed it. He had a confidence in God that eclipsed any doubt he might have had in himself. So he was able to stand up there with confidence, with courage, and deliver a truthful word and then the wisdom of what to do with it. I want to be that. Yes, God. So when that moment came, he had that faith in what God said and the confidence that he could take this job. So Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this and whom is the Spirit of God? Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Then nine years later, we're two years into the famine, Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. 22 years after his dream of greatness, Joseph saw the vision God had given him happen right in front of his eyes, and he remembered it. Wow. God, and, the, here, and here's the unique part. Hearing that dream, his brothers, they were angry because it was all about the elevation of Joseph. But the truth was, Joseph had been elevated so that the goodness of God and the greatness of his plan and the saving and the restoring could happen for them. It was to show God's own greatness and goodness. And he said to them, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. God has a plan to save. Amen? God has a plan to save. And saving isn't just part of God's plan. After Joseph saw his brothers, Scripture mentions Joseph having fits of weeping six times. He keeps having to go into the other room and cry and compose himself and come back. He keeps crying. Why is that? Because there's been salvation, but there hasn't been restoration. There's pain. Those feelings and thoughts on the road, they're still there. His brothers are still angry. They're shameful, or they're full of shame, and they're, they're nervous and frightened. They needed restoration. Another 17 years passes. His family is all living in Egypt, and his father, Jacob, passes away. And with their father gone, Joseph's brothers were afraid that he would get even with them, that he would remember what, he, what they had done, and he would he would um, 
um, take them down. So they asked him for forgiveness. They threw themselves before him. They said, we, we will be your slaves. Just don't, don't kill us. Don't kill our family. And here we are in Genesis 50. This is the ISV version. Don't be afraid, Joseph responded. Am I sitting in God's place? As far as you're concerned, you were planning evil against me, but God intended it for good. Planning to bring about the present result so that many people would be preserved alive. So don't be afraid. I'll take care of you and your little ones. So Joseph kept on comforting them, speaking to the needs of their hearts. I love how Joseph responds. Has this yes to a restoration. The, the preacher Tim Keller out of New York City, he states this so beautifully. He said that Joseph saw reconciliation through a heart that was changed, that a, through a heart that was changed by love and full of peace. It's right there. A heart that was changed by love and full of peace. And these were evident through three things. He left all writings of wrongs to God. He saw God's hand in man's malice. And he responded to mistreatment with forgiveness and practical affection. These are not difficult things for me to do. These are impossible things for me to do. When I think about what Joseph has gone through and what his brothers deserve, I think, I want to seek justice for myself. I want to blame and accuse God for all of the evil in the world. I want to withhold forgiveness and affection so that I can regain power. They don't deserve it. I'm finally in a place where I can give them what they deserve. I would not go this route. And that's why it is so essential, friends, that we be filled with the Spirit of God, that the old is gone and the new has come, that I would have a heart changed by love and a life full of peace so that reconciliation can come. And this is for you and for your families and for our nation. I have been weeping and praying this week. God, what is going on? This is a nation that is pulling itself apart. There is hatred and we need reconciliation. God, what do we do? What do we do? And I'm comforted by the fact that God has a heart for reconciliation. I'm comforted by the fact that it is an impossibility for us to get there without having hearts that are changed by love and full of peace. I believe Jesus is the solution to a country that is hurting, to families that are hurting, to individuals who are hurting. He is the way to reconciliation. And we're going to pray about that together as we um, progress at the end today. But first, um, I just want to again say that God has this plan to save and to restore and he also has a plan that is bigger than us. Um, I have a friend, she was making a big banner at her church. It was really wide, and it was all cut up into different sections. And her and her, her, and her team, they were all painting it and stapling it and taping it. And then when it finally got big enough and they were done, they went to hang it up. And there it was above the stage, Mary Churstmas. Oops. I was laughing so hard. I'm like, how did you make a mistake that crucial? It's like spelling someone's name wrong on their birthday cake. And um, she said, you know, it's really easy to make big mistakes when you're focusing on one letter at a time. 
And it's that perspective piece that we are just one letter of a bigger message that God is sending. He's sending it to the world. It's easy to lose perspective and to think that it's one thing when really it's another to get the whole story wrong. Joseph's story took decades for him to see what God's plan was. But even with that perspective of 40, 50 years looking back at what God had done, they still didn't see the biggest story that God was telling. The biggest story that God was telling through Joseph's life was the story that Jesus himself recounted on the road when he was with two travelers who were downhearted. They, had, they thought Messiah had come, but he had died and his body had disappeared, and they were walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and suddenly the risen Jesus appeared beside, him, beside them and said, why are you downhearted? Why are you downcast? Then he said, let me open up and explain the scriptures, the prophets, the stories of old, so that they could see there was a plan that God had been writing from the beginning. And Joseph was just a piece of it. He was a pen that God was writing a story with. He had a unique color, but it was the same story that he was writing with his dad and his brothers and his sons. And now with us, it's a story about God's love. It's a story about salvation through Jesus. We look at Joseph's story, and I, I can just hear Jesus on this road saying, remember Joseph. He was the lowest in his family. He was a slave, the lowest of men. He was thrown in a pit. He was despised and rejected by his brothers. He was sold for pieces of silver. They fought over his clothes. He did not sin. He did not compromise his character. He believed God's goodness and plan. God was with him, and he was raised up to glory, and through his life there was salvation for the world. That's Jesus' story. And it was written through Joseph's life so that many could be saved. This is the hope that we have in our pain. This is the hope that we have in Jesus. I think about it as poetry written with our own lives. We need to react to this with that uncompromising character, faith in God's goodness, Remember, he's including us in the most important thing. He's not playing with us. We can trust him. This is the story of love, the story of Jesus, and God has a plan to save, a plan to restore, and a plan that is bigger than us. Amen. I'd like to take a moment to all pray together, um, particularly what I mentioned before, um, praying for our nation and um, praying for reconciliation and restoration. Could we all stand together as we do this? And I know um, this might be a little awkward, but if you could just hold the hands of the people next to you so that we have this symbol of unity together. Um, I'm gonna lead us in prayer, but if you could just also just pray, pray from your heart, agree, say yes and amen, but also just offer up whatever prayers you have for reconciliation. God, we believe and we know that Jesus is the salvation for the nation. 
He is salvation and the restoration and reconciliation that comes through him. And God, we pray together, we intercede, and we ask, God, that you would do a mighty work, that you would revive this nation for Jesus, that you would bridge all of the gaps and the brokenness and the hurting and the pain and the miscommunication and anything that's standing in the way of brothers loving brothers and brothers loving you. God, we ask that you would do what only you can do. God, would you unite us, help us to love each other. Help us to be full of peace. Let there be complete uh, renewal of our hearts and minds through Jesus so, so that we will have that reconciliation. Lord, I pray the same thing for families in this room, for individual hearts, that pain that we felt on the journey. Thank you that you've been with us, and we invite you in, God, to restore, to make new, to revive. And Lord, we also just pray for that salvation story that you're writing, that, that you would be able to bring many to salvation in our nation, in our families, in our surroundings, and end in Lincoln, God. Together we just offer up this prayer in faith that you have a good plan. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.